at the end of the day, every manufacturing company, you ask them, oh, I do sheet metal. No, you're in a people business. We're, we're in a labor and people business nowadays. The machinery does a lot of what we're doing. Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76. It's certainly an exciting time to be in manufacturing. New technology is emerging all around us at a faster rate than ever before. There's certainly no shortage of demand in most places. And the next industrial revolution in America is right in front of us. Interestingly enough, it seems that the most important ingredient in all of this is one that's been around since the very beginning, and that's the people. My guest today will talk about why the best manufacturers, even those whose businesses have been constructed on the backs of AI, cobots, machine learning, and automation, still need to put their people at the front of their respective strategies if they want to stay ahead. Let me introduce him. Jason Azevedo created his first manufacturing company with just $600 when he was only 15 years old. At this young age, he was able to establish business with companies including Starbucks, Nike, Disney, Marvel, Volkswagen, Audi, Lucasfilms, and NBA teams. Jason owns and operates legacy U.S. manufacturing companies and has hatched a plan to give back some of his wealth to the community of these American workers. In 2009, Jason co-founded Mosaic, taking on the role of CEO, but also touching conceptual development, engineering, and deployment. Since 2009, Jason's been at the helm of growing the company year over year, acquiring several entities and creating several others to round out his manufacturing efforts. Jason's personal interests include riding dirt bikes and quads, beach volleyball, whiskey tasting, and learning to ranch horses, goats, cattle, and chickens. International travel weaves its way in there as well. Jason, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking today. Yeah, likewise. Um, well, Jason, let's start at the beginning here. The first thing I learned about you is that at age 15, you'd grown a business to 1 million in sales. And I can promise you that at age 15, the only things I was worried about were who my homecoming date was going to be and when freshman basketball tryouts were going to be. So you have to tell us that story. So we, so we built the first company. I was actually, um, I, I was in it with my brother also. Uh, I was 15, he was 20. And like every harebrained kid, we're, we're going to make a ton of money printing t-shirts. Um, and come to find out that is not a really good way to make a ton of money. Uh, so we, and we had started, it was February of 2007. Um, so right as we kind of got our feet wet, we, we only had $600 each, kind of working through this, this business, um, the market falls out. And it, you, you get the end of 2007, early 2008 crash, right as we're kind of getting going. And every person we talked to was, this is the worst time on earth to start a business. This is horrible. This isn't, uh, you guys should get out and you guys, you're going to lose everything. Um, and being the 
geniuses we were, we didn't listen to a single person. Um, so it was, and, and it was, and looking back, they were probably right that it was just a really bad time. But we also it ended up being the best time ever because all the equipment in the in on the market was going for pennies on the dollar because everybody's losing everything. Um, so we're able to go buy equipment at basically fire sale prices, and. All of the people, all the big, big companies that had all the best clients, well, some of them started going out of business. So you start having these large clients who are, they're used to being at other places, but that other place isn't there anymore. So there's kind of a, a gap in these markets suddenly, which we were able to start exploiting. And we, we took it that we wanted to go after the most complex, crazy stuff we possibly could um, because nobody wanted to do that in that market. Uh, they, everyone wanted to run the simplest production they possibly could. They wanted to really be very protectionist. And we went the opposite direction go, Hey, we'll just take on the craziest stuff we can. We don't know. We don't know anything about anything because it's so early on. And well, when you start doing the craziest stuff and there's a hole in the market, you start being able to pick up large clients that are, that normally a business wouldn't. Uh, at that early of an age, be able to get into. So it, it it ended up being a blessing for us, but it was definitely one of those situations. You're sitting there going, "Ooh, this is gonna this is gonna hurt," <laughs> and, and and we we learned how to fight through it. That's cool. And this, so this was a t-shirt printing business, literally. Yeah. So originally, um, the very first company we had was a uh, a t-shirt printing company. We took it a lot further than that, though. The next thing we know, we were printing clothing. We're manufacturing our own machines internally to do crazy stuff. So we, it started printing t-shirts. And then at the end of it, uh, at the end of that specific organization, it was really a development and a, a manufacturing of apparel and, and clothing items. Very cool. Well, that's, yeah, it's a great story. You know, it's interesting. You were, um, a few years in life ahead of me there, but it's right about the same time I started my business, which is my only business and the one I'm still running today. And it was, you know, I look back on it and think, well, I never knew a good time from the beginning. We started in 06, uh, watched everything kind of fall apart a year later. And we were, you know, me and my business partner were 23 year old guys who knew nothing. Right. And, and so you just, you figure it out. And, and then when things get better, you kind of ride the wave. You've already been ahead of it. So it was awesome when you got to the good years. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've never had one of these. This is exactly, this is how business goes. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, very cool. Congrats on, on that. And now let's kind of keep moving forward here. So I've, I heard you talk about how we need to revitalize manufacturing at this moment in time. That, of course, could mean a lot of things. I'm curious what it means from where you sit. So manufacturing is going through a transition point. Um, I mean, it, it constantly is, but there's, there's some really special things happening right now. Uh, the, the first and foremost, and, and our focus is American manufacturing. There is a huge transition back to more and more production in the U.S. And a lot of misnomers that a lot of people have gotten stuck in their heads just aren't true anymore. Uh, my, my favorite is, oh, it's not affordable to produce in the U.S. Well, that, that, that's not true. And if you, don't, if you don't, people don't want to believe me when I say it, that's fine. Foxconn, the number one Chinese contract manufacturer, is building a U.S. plant. I mean, I, that, that alone says it. It is viable to produce in the U.S. But there is a revitalization that has to happen. You can't just keep on doing things the way you've done them for 50, 60 years because 
the production, especially as it's coming back, is different than when it left. And we, we have to em embrace new, new ways of doing things. Factories cannot look like dingy, scary, dangerous places. They, they, they've got to be polished and clean and pretty. And employee wellness and health is the, the absolute primary. Uh, the amount of manufacturers I talk to that I, I oftentimes do not understand the business that they're actually in. At the end of the day, every manufacturing company, you ask them, oh, I do sheet metal. No, you're in the people business. We're, we're in a labor and people business nowadays. The machinery does a lot of what we're doing. So what, what any strong business leader in, in the manufacturing sector needs to be looking at is process efficiencies, how to take care of your people, how to, how to get them new skill sets. Uh, we, we just brought in, um, in one of our plants, a robotic welder. And the guy who was welding was, was nervous because he thought it was going to take his job. And it, for us, it was clear that it wasn't going to take his job. It was actually going to make him make more money. But to him, it wasn't. We had to really take a step back and explain to him and go, hey, automation is not here to take your jobs. It is here so you, aren't, you don't go home with welding, uh, with, with flash burns and, and so that you can get more products out. And the reality is we are consuming products so much faster than we were 50 years ago that if you're trading a single man hour with no efficiency and no assistance, there's no way we can make enough products to, to, supply, to supply the entire world. It's just, we have to get more out of each man hour Otherwise, it, we just simply cannot, cannot keep up with our consumption anymore. So there's a lot of these misnomers of automation is going to take jobs or it's too expensive to, to do in the U.S. None of that's true anymore. I mean, there was a point in time, that, that, no question of that. But the tech that has come into the manufacturing industry in, just in the last five years, it, it's completely reset all of those, the, those things that people have ingrained in them. The next step of it, is revitalizing people's view of manufacturing. If you go back 50 years ago, a mother would turn to her son and go, you should get a good factory job. It'll take care of you. You're good to go. Well, US manufacturing went through a weird spot there for, for about 20 years where a lot of the industry decided that the way to compete with low-wage countries was to treat America, American workers like low, like low-wage countries treat their workers. And the reality is that's not, that's not going to happen in the U.S. And we, it went through a large learning curve. So now if you look at the plants, like look at the new Tesla plant with polished white floors, beautiful lighting, safety mechanisms everywhere. These are jobs that are starting at super high pay with no education needed to take them. They'll on-site train, but we need to get people to realize that so that it gets back to that point where you're proud to go get a factory job or a manufacturing job. And it's not, it's not seen as a negative. So there's a huge revitalization that has to happen there where you're actually, the work has to be put in to re-educate the general public about what the manufacturing sector is and what it's becoming and what, where it's headed. And if that work's put in, the, the industry will thrive incredibly well. It's just the work has to be done. Yeah, that was really well said. I mean, you've hit on so you hit on so many things there that I, I've just heard from so many different, really smart people in the manufacturing sector over the last year or two, especially since I've been doing this podcast. I mean, first of all, 
there's not enough labor to go around and that situation is not getting better. You mentioned welding. That's probably, it's probably worse there than anywhere in manufacturing from everything I'm hearing with the rate at which people are exiting versus entering, right? You have this, this perception of robots are taking our jobs when the reality is there's nobody, you can't get the work done. Like automation is no longer an option. It is a necessity for survival. And then the people whose jobs may be actually being replaced to some extent on the front lines are being elevated to places where they can do the jobs where, like you said, they're not coming home with burns on, on their arms and like, you know. We make a point to never say we're, we're saving jobs. Yeah. And we, there are jobs that need to die. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that is the reality. Yeah. So you revitalize the worker and give him a new skill set so that he matches the modern industry. And I have a really hard time people like, oh, we're going to save jobs. No, do, I do not want people doing jobs they were doing 40 years ago because yeah. they're dangerous, they're unhealthy. There's better ways to do it now. But I'll tell you one thing, I would rather train a welder to program welding robots and run them all day than I would anybody else. Because when he looks at the weld, he's going to be able to tell you if the robotics is working correctly, unlike any other person can. So no, I don't, I don't want to save the welding job. I, I, they, they, I, I want that to be automated, but I want the welder making more money programming that well, that robot all day long yep. and making sure it's putting out the, the correct product. So really it's a revitalization of the workers and the, the plants and the communities that they're in, not just a, Hey, let's put a bandaid on and save the jobs because frankly, that just doesn't work. Yep. Absolutely. I think you nailed it. Jason, shifting gears for a second here. What what do we need to be doing here in the US to keep pace with China and other growing manufacturing powerhouses in the world? So I'll, I'll kind of take it from what we're what we're doing um, and then and push back a little bit. For all functional purposes, we uh, we own a private equity fund. Uh, but really we're manufacturers. We use private equity as our mechanism by which to buy companies. And we're going out and buying legacy U.S. manufacturing companies, profitable, well-run companies. Usually, owner doesn't have a succession plan, or they, they, this company's just—it's a good, solid company, but it's a regional, usually a regional company. Where China and a lot of uh, and all most manufacturing countries have an upper hand is the complete supply chain. So the old days of being a manufacturer, and I only do sheet metal. Well, that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't match the current supply chain. Products are significantly more complex. OEMs do not want to individually piece every single component from everywhere, take it to an assembly facility. And you're starting to see more and more contract manufacturers pop up. So they are at least controlling the supply chain. But really getting connected to a larger supply chain is incredibly important. That That is the, the largest barrier. If you can help OEMs by controlling as much of that supply, uh, that, that, that process as possible. And you don't have to own every single one. In, in our world, we do like to own as many of the, the components as possible, but you don't have to. You just need to have a good working relationship with the industry. American manufacturers are not historically known for being the best at working with each other. There's a, you, you get a, it's a lot of finger pointing if an issue happens on that's kind of got to go. That's got to go. It's the, the, the sharing information, talking to each other, really working as a, a major organism 
is incredibly important. And in, in reality, that a lot of the countries that have taken manufacturing from the US, that's how they function, whether it be a, a function of their how their governments work and forcing companies to work together, whether it's a function of just how they do uh, trade information. So really getting that information flow between manufacturers. And then the other one we touched on is you, you got to employ wellness and employee focus has to be paramount. We need people in the in the industries. And uh, it this goes from engineering talent down to operating uh, machinery. If we don't focus on employee wellness within the manufacturing industry, we will never get enough people to work in our plants. Therefore, we will not that we will not get the, the industry in position. Um, that that is the that is the core of it. If you look at uh, we talked about Foxconn's. They have had a huge issue finding employees for that plant in Wisconsin because we, ha- we haven't put the work in to treat people well. And that is the big transition that needs to happen over the next five to seven years is make a manufacturing job something people are proud of and happy to go to every day. Do you see companies, are there examples where you see this happening really well? Like who should be a model to other manufacturing businesses out there? There's there's sprinklings of it everywhere. Look, take a te- uh, take a Tesla. What they've done with the the image and the quality of the inside of their plant is is impressive. I mean, it's you you're putting someone at least working in an environment that they feel good. And I, I I'm fortunate enough to have some of the early uh, Tesla employees on my team, and things like putting uh, putting shrubbery inside of a factory sounds ridiculous. But it just made people feel better. Like this doesn't have to be massive, crazy things like, oh, we're giving away free stuff every day. No, just just make people want to be there. Um, Ford and and some of the uh, biometric suits that they're using to take strain off of people's body. If an employee leaves your leaves your building and they they are not exhausted, their body's not hurting. When they talk to someone else in their community, hey, uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I actually work in a factory. Well, if that person's hurting, it's going to be, oh, I work in a factory. It, the, the little, little differences. It, and you're seeing it all over the place. And different companies are doing it for different reasons. Um, some of them are doing it because they want to reduce OSHA uh, issues. But the really strong ones who truly have teams paying attention to employee wellness and happiness those are a, a, a very special kind of company. And you do see it a lot more in the privately held. We're currently acquiring a few companies that are very privately held. And it's really, really interesting to see how passionate the owners are for taking care of their people. And then you look at their, you look at their balance sheets and it matches because the people take care of the company. So it's, the, the, and then you, we've, we've walked into ones that you meet the owner, you meet the ownership and you're sitting there going, oh yeah. And you look at that balance sheet and it's, it's mean and nasty. And you're like, okay, this, the, the, there is a correlation here. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and what more important time than right now when retention is such a challenge and, and, you know, you hear all about the great resignation and people just, you know, getting up and leaving, not coming back to work. I mean, there's no more important time than right now to be focused on employee wellness. 
Yeah, it's and I mean we're and we're a little crazy on our, our side. We're going even a step further. So I, our private equity fund, the way that we actually hit our liquidation event for our uh, for our investors and for ourselves is we actually are transferring 100% of the ownership to the employees in the local communities because we I, I, we as a team believe so heavily that protecting these oftentimes regional manufacturing companies in their local community is incredibly important. And that that is a way that you can revitalize not only just the the manufacturing sector, but the country as a whole is transfer that ownership to the employees in the in their their home local uh, communities. That way, the only person who can choose to move that out of that community in the long run is the people within the community. So it, it's we're, we're really focused on. How do you take care of the people? And, and I'll tell you, of the first four employees that we ever had back when, back when we started the first company, of the first four employees, three of them still work for me. And they've, they've come up through the company. We've, we've done a lot of work together. They, all, they, they hold higher positions in the organization. But these are people that started with us at 16, 17 years old. So it, it does work. <laughs> We, 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 we've proven it. <laughs> so, but it, it really, you have to have a, a, a very clear focus on it. Okay, Jason. So for manufacturing owners and leaders who are listening right now that are looking to create value in their businesses, can you talk about what kinds of things that you look for in a business as you'd maybe evaluate them? So there, there's base metrics. I mean, the, the reality is top line and bottom line are important. Of course, that has to be there. But then the importance is for us, and I recommend this to anybody buying companies, try to find, if you're looking at a company and when we go look at a company, we're trying to find hints of how the employees feel about the company. If you buy a company that the ownership has treated the employees badly for a long time, no matter what, you have an uphill battle the day you walk into owning that company. It's like picking up a pound puppy that was abused. The institution is going to be scared and hurt, and there will be distrust built in that is incredibly difficult to undo. So if you if you want to add value to your manufacturing company, fix any distrust issues between the management and the employees. If you if you do not do that, someone coming in to acquire you will use that against you because it it makes the job so much harder. Cleanliness, uh, it sounds crazy, but it's another huge one for us. It is hard to, uh, we, we looked at a plant about nine months ago. Love the company, love the, um, the product, love the quality, love the financials, loved everything. Walked into their plant and it was so messy that we decided the only way we would buy this company is if we move the plant because we can't even get it clean. And so it, we decided, here's what we need to do. So if that was used financially against them, and we, it, because we knew the only option, and they had beautiful new equipment too throughout this plant, but the only way we could get this place under control was going to be to move it. Uh, or not the only way, but it was the cheaper way was to move this plant. So you want to make sure that you're investing in things that make it easy for someone to take over the company. And people forget that a lot that you, when, when we're looking at a company, if I'm going to buy it, I got to do whatever you've been doing. 
And if you've been wearing 15 hats and, and you're, you're kind of the, the driver of everything, your company's not really worth, worth it nearly as much to me. That, that, that is the reality is you, you have to understand the buyer has to come in and run the place. So you start getting a leadership team in place. If you're preparing to sell, you, uh, we're, we're going to always look at the leadership team has been in place for at least two, three years. Think about what you would want when you were buying something. Um, the other one is your equipment is not worth anything. I mean, the, the, the reality, it, it is financially worth something, but I, we run into a lot of owners that are like, well, we've got this machine from 1945. If I had to buy it again, it'd be $250,000. And it's like, no, <laughs> sorry. I'm not trying to be rude, but no. And then the other thing is, is realize who you're selling to. Um, I will be honest. There's an often time I, I buy companies cheaper, but because of our track record of preserving the legacy. And that that is very, very important to, that that is a core concept, a core pillar of our business. So when I go in, it's like, hey, I am going to preserve this. I'm going to make sure we take care of your people that have been here. We're, we're going to uh, do everything in our power to keep everything in the local community that's in. But you, you got to remember that making a decision like that also has trade-offs. You have to understand who you are as a business seller and a business owner and match that up with how you want to value your organization. This is definitely our like a uh, daily <laughs> within our organization is how do you look at a company? Yeah, I bet. But it's great. I mean, people need to hear this from the outside. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, your, your example of the, the machinery from 1945, right. Although, although in extreme kind of, you know, situation, I, I'm sure th this is how some people are thinking it's, they're not thinking about the right things in terms of what is actually creating value if they wanted to exit or, you know, and, and frankly, I mean, the way I've been advised with my business, a completely different type of business is you, you build it like, like you intend to sell it, even if you don't intend to sell it. Right. And you got to make those bigger long-term decisions and you need to be focused on the right stuff. Well, and, and the other one is if you're starting to get closer and closer to selling, do not change what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I watch people where they mentally decided they're going to sell. So they start checking out or they decide they're going to sell. So they start revving the engine as hard as they can to increase the number. The problem with that is, is that revving the engine like crazy, it, it creates cracks and all, and it sometimes it works out and they get these nice big revenue lines and everything's great and sometimes they damage the organization so much that anybody coming to buy it is like whoa no 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 i mean you would be amazed how many financials we see that doubled in the year pr prior to uh them wanting to sell and that's good sometimes that is really bad other times and i will say most private equity and most people buying these organizations as a, as a, as a business. So when they actually, all they do is buy and run companies, your, your pop of a hundred percent last year, isn't really a value to them. It's cool. It's great. Some numbers there, but it's not, it's not, it's not guaranteed to be sustainable and it's not unless they, the, the person purchasing believes they, they can repeat that two or three more times it doesn't add a lot of value to them. So just really a good, strong, stable company 
that can can expand is what you want to be. And and we are we are different. I, I like very strong. I don't like turnarounds. I it's so much. There's so many good companies for sale in, in this country. I don't find the reason to go buy one that has to be completely flipped and all this stuff have to be done. And you got to, it just, it just doesn't match our model. Jason, here's a wide open question for you to kind of put a wrap on this one. What, what do you see on the horizon in manufacturing in the U S what gets you excited about the future? I think the, there's a lot of energy behind cool new stuff that's going to really help with process and safety and, and employee wellness uh, that the movement of cobots coming into, into industry though. I mean, those are things that uh, 10 years ago, people were barely even dreaming about and really b- being able to program a, ro- a piece of robotics in eight minutes or program a well, uh, uh, a welding robot in 10 minutes like that, the, the tech has caught up so fast to where it, where it needs to be. Um, I'm, I'm extremely excited. I remember we, we bought, uh, some people will remember these, they were called Baxter robots, uh, from rethink robotics. They were the first like usable, um, cobot. They're basic, they were toys. And now you've got industrial cobots. I think it's just going to completely change how the game is played. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's been really fun for me to talk to so many different people from, you know, who, who have different, um, areas of specialty looking into manufacturing with AI, with robotics, you know, machine analytics, machine learning, like there's just so much interesting stuff happening. And like you said, it's happening so fast now that um, it's like, we're finally catching up to where we need to be. So we were in a simulation lab um, in Florida talking about some stuff, but the we're, we're actually in conversations right now to build an augmented reality system for assembly lines. So as, so it's popping up all your quality checks and the next thing you need to put, and it's, it's imposing it on where you need to do it. I, I mean, re, the text here, it, it, it's not like there's some new invention that has to be built for this. Yeah. It's here and it's getting cheaper and cheaper by the day. I, it, I think the way we're going to augment people's ability to, to do the jobs is going to be unbelievable. It's awesome. Well, Jason, can you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and where they can learn more about MRCA or any of the other ventures that you're involved with? Yeah. So um, MRCA.net, go there. There's actually a way to schedule even a direct conversation with me. I'm very, very much about sharing where the industry's at and who, what, what ideas we're all playing with. Um, So there is, we, we leave a link on there that you can get directly to onto my calendar we, uh, along with uh, other partners in the organization, also follow us on LinkedIn. We put up a lot of content of stuff that we're think is cool that we're working on. If anybody's interested in investing um, and they're an accredited investor, please uh, go there, go to the website. We can talk to you about kind of the benefits and the, the amounts that it is. We, tr- we left our minimum investment pretty, pretty low. So typical Americans can that typical accredited investors and Americans can get involved with this because we we really do think it's incredibly important. So it really the website's the best way to just get contact points with us, and we're always happy to talk. Beautiful. Well, Jason, thanks for doing this today. It was a really interesting conversation. Awesome. Thank you. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive. Mm-hmm. 
You've been listening to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com slash learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.